Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, Monday later in the afternoon. And I want to take a look at the Parsha. I have a lot of things to do this week over here. Um, but I don't have another medical thing. Um, so I like to do as many of these for the, uh, I can as early in the week as I possibly can. I want to really thank Avram Niss and Maring for uh, volunteering to sponsor this, stepping up to the plate, as I say. It's very kind of him. And uh, I still have hopes. <laughs> I'm getting together to meet him next time I'm in New York City. Actually, I haven't been there in a long time. Uh, so ever since my other relatives moved out of the city and my daughter's in Lakewood, so uh, I and mom's never uh, get a chance. Very, very rarely do I get to New York City. Um, okay, anyway, let's take a look at Parsha's Shoftim. Um, and there's uh, a few very interesting points, I think. Um, right at the beginning, they talk about uh, Mishpat Tzedek. Isn't that right? There's a famous Ron that often quoted, I know I have, where in Drush's Iran. Uh, and you can find it summarized very nicely in um Barbanel, as usual. He's very, very good at those summaries. And um the problem, of course, goes as follows. Uh, was generated. It's one of the famous Drush's Iran. You look it up, it's the whole thing on Prussia shows him just about this. And um, the question is, what's the difference between Shoftim and Malachim? Uh, which is in this week's Prussia. It's all confusing, as I pointed out in the past, because the Torah never clearly lays out, for whatever reason, the Torah never clearly lays out what we call in America the separation of powers. And um, it's fascinating that a proper delineation of powers among the institutions of authority is kind of fundamental to the political stability of any polity. That, my friends, is exactly what's going on in the state of Israel right now. That's why they're going crazy and tearing each other apart, tearing themselves apart. It's very sad to observe, but the shot is that never was spelled out, at least not with sufficient clarity, um, what is the role of the Supreme Court. And so... Uh, the Supreme Court in Israel, as you know, long ago, I mean 30 years ago, whatever it was, sort of took over uh, the idea that it's the final arbiter of things and it has the, you know, it's, it's the highest koach, asadokhalosa say, you know, that, that whole business. And um, and it's been going on along those lines. Hold on something. <laughs> that was my good friend, my doctor. <laughs> my very good friend, Dr. Ensel. Very good friend. Anyhow, um, so I was saying that Israel's tearing itself apart because as a machlokis, you know, what precisely should be the power of the court. So it's mamish like this, Parsha Shoftim. In fact, I'm sure some uh, hip rabbis in North America will be giving speeches if they're, you know, comparing the Parsha this week, I suppose, to the uh, big fights going on in Israel. We have them to a lesser extent in America, but we certainly have them over here. 
of the Supreme Court and the American Constitution also was not necessarily supposed to have the power that it has. And I've spoken about this many times. And nevertheless, it was able to acquire that, at least for a lot of the time. Ad kach that a Supreme Court says something is constitutional or it's mutter than it is, even though it's not legislated. For example, the Supreme Court said gay marriages is is uh is guaranteed by the constitution that was the end of that discussion even though that's a social revolutionary uh societal revolutionary kind of move um and all these reflect the the, the fact that you know it's hard to circumscribe where where exactly um the uh, zones of competence are in the different institutions of the government without trying to sound too fancy uh, you know, what's the power of the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, even if you don't use those terms? And as I pointed out in, the, in earlier years also, the Jewish religion is also a mess on that because does the king have the power? Does the Sanhedrin have the power? Does uh, the rabbi should be in charge? Uh, you know, all that stuff. Suppose you had somebody today who was from David Melch but wasn't the biggest Tom Chacham. Should he be the king and have the powers of a king to kill people and stuff? Or should it be, you know, the biggest Talmud uh, Chacham? Then, leaving aside the question of who's the biggest Talmud Chacham, but, you know, let's say you could uh, settle on a group of five people or ten people. You, you see what I'm saying? Who has the final power? Uh, we today, we Orthodox Jews, live in a period of rabbinical Judaism, and therefore uh, our culture is so unfolded, it's a historical talk by itself, that, you know, in our way of thinking, the scholar, the rabbis have the supreme power, or they would give them the supreme power. But it's not so clear how it was in the old days. And that's goof, goof of the point, and that's why the Mepharshim were all over the place. And this is reflected not only in some little rift that I'm saying, but in the famous story in the book of Shmuel, where Shmuel Anubi was angry at the people for wanting a king. Do you remember that? And uh, that's brought down by all the Mepharshim. And the famous classic question, Menashev in Israel, of course, has it. Uh... As I again, as I mentioned, is uh, you know what was wrong with asking for a king? Isn't isn't minui uh, hamelech? Isn't the appointment of a king one of the six hundred thirteen misses? And you'll remember the Barbaran says the b'diavet, and the other one says this way and that way. To in order to answer that question dialectically, there's like eight or nine classical answers, and they're all lined up in the conciliator Menashe in Israel. I think they're probably lined up in the Barbaran if I know him. Um, <coughs> I'm serious. And, uh, you know, you can look all that stuff up. One of them, uh, among the, uh, and I've mentioned it in passing, in the past, I believe, um, one of them is Duran, the Drushus Iran, who says something very interesting. Duran says something very interesting. He distinguishes in the Drushus Iran between the, uh, the Mishpat of the Shoftim and the Mishpat of the Melech. And the Mishpat of the Shoftim is what he calls Mishpat Tzedek, Therefore, Shoftim is a Mishpat Tzedek. It doesn't use that language by a Melech. Okay? By a Melech, it says, you know, uh, when you come to the land, and don't get a guy, don't give the king too much to horses and women and, and gold, uh, make sure he has a safer Torah. But it does not make sure he doesn't get too arrogant in the built room of That's an interesting point. Right? The king shouldn't become, you know, too hoity toity. Uh, 
Uh, but that's it. It doesn't say that if there's a clash between the Melech and the Shofet, who do you go by and stuff like that. And so very famously, the Ron suggests, I repeat, suggests, and the Ron lived in the 14th century in Aragon, where he was the uh, chief justice of the Jewish Supreme Court of the Kingdom. I mean that literally, the, the king and the queen uh, delegate, appointed the Ron, Nisim Agarona, as a sort of a, a one-man appeals court. So he understood, it gave a great deal of thought to these questions that I'm raising today about uh, institutional structure, the kind of thing that you yawn when you're eighth or ninth grade and have civics classes or whatever they call today. and But they're actually very important, you know, in running the society. And that's true in the city level and the state level and the national level and around the world. You know, what is the system of the governance? And, uh, you know, and, and how do they work out, you know, who has the final say? Okay? Um, I mean, in Israel, theoretically... I mean, you can make an argument either way. You know, theoretically, an elected parliament should have the final say because they're elected by the people, as long as they don't uh, misuse that to prevent other elections. You know, uh, as long as every four years or so there's elections. But, you know, that's the old problem of democracy. What if I win 51% and say, now that I'm in the government, I control the government, I say, let's kill all the 49 that didn't vote for me. You know, that's misusing the democracy. So it's it's a complex question that's been dealt with by political theorists and the Greeks, you know, Aristotle and others down the centuries. Machiavelli, my goodness, a whole whole litany of these guys. Now, here's the point I want to get to. Duran says that um, ideally it should be shoftim 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 mishpatzet that the um, rules of the Torah are such a nature that um, as we all know, it's very hard to get a conviction. You have Nituadim, the Hasra, the guys got to be Matarats and Lamisa, etc., etc. And uh, there are many rules in the Torah that don't make any sense in terms of of running a successful society. We couldn't do that in America today. Imagine if if you're talking about urban crime, you see, we can't convict anybody unless there's two Adim and there's Hasra, and he's Matarats Mola Onish. And uh, this, that, and the other, you know, and they, uh, uh, <laughs> pretty much, you know, the guy has to want to be uh, uh, arrested. Um, if I was committing the crime and the two people saw me, I'd shoot the two people. Then you can't have to aid him. You can't get a, a conviction. Society uh, couldn't live like that. Moreover, I used to do this in high school. There are many laws of the Torah that are impossible. The Hainu, think of Gromov. If I uh, if I know, if I want to kill you, let's put it bluntly, but I'm looking for a way to do it in which it's not actionable, you can't punish me for doing it, according to the Torah, I'll just put a bomb in your car, you know, a couple hours before you get into it, or even a day before you get into it. And the bomb will go off, and there was a, a sufficient time gap, it'll be a Gromov, and Gromov's potter. Now, I know you're Chayabi Deshmai, but a criminal doesn't care about that. So how could I run Baltimore, Maryland, or New York, or Lakewood, or anywhere else, or Chicago, or St. Louis, or San Francisco, you know, with the idea that Grandma's putter? So, uh, I'm just saying, there's a million cases like that. And the Ron, therefore, suggests that when the society is good and people are from, then you can have the Mishpatetic. You can have the Torah's laws. But when the society's bad, and they start taking advantage of these loopholes, and they create a chaotic situation, what we can call a novel b'shusa Torah, not in the sense 
that the Ramban meant it necessarily, but nevertheless, it would be a society of nobles, Bershusa Torah, and be impossible for a social contract, social fabric to survive. So then you introduce Mishva and Amelk. The Melk doesn't have to listen to any laws. The Melk can make up his own laws, and he doesn't need to aid him in Hasra and all the rest of it. The Melk can say, it's too much crime going on in Brooklyn. Therefore, anybody who looks to me even slightly like a criminal, I'm shooting him. That's it. I, I'll get some innocent people. Tough luck, but we will get that son of a gun who committed the crime. You see? So, uh, you know, that kind of attitude, which in America we call martial law. You know, you kind of suspend the rules of uh, of due process. The Torah is a fanatic about due process, like any advanced law system in the world. But a Mishpah Melch doesn't have the due process. What is Stalin's due process? You know what I mean? You do whatever he wants. And so you have this in mind, and this is what they mean, the Mishpah Melucha, uh, even though it's not a Mishpah Tzedek. <coughs> That's the thesis of the run. So I was giving some thought to this, and um, the emphasis, is, in my opinion, the emphasis is that um, it comes out very interesting for the following reason. What does the Ron mean when he says that the Shoftim, because they're going strictly by the Torah law, will give an absolute Mishpatzetic, a pure, correct sock? How do you know? Why? Um, as opposed to a king. So, it struck me as follows. The Ron is talking about the biblical laws, the derises. In the time of the Torah, as you know, is the Torah of and Torah of The Torah of was precisely not written down in order to give maximum um, leeway and maximum discretion to the Shoftim, to the to the Basin, to the Dayanim. In other words, the system's supposed to be do you pick the right people uh, who are what we would call today Talmudic Chachamim? Not that they memorized a bunch of books, which is what a Talmud Chachamim is today, but They've learned, there were no books in those days. They've learned uh, discipleship-wise with existing Tamei Chachamim. They've observed them in practice. They have Shemush big time. Uh, Shemush in a big way. And uh, they observe their best practices. And then they have what we call today the fifth Shulchan Aruch. And there's four Shulchan Aruchs, and the fifth one is the common sense of how to apply it properly. And the fifth Shulchan Aruch is actually more important than the other four. You need the other four, but the fifth Shulchan Aruch is important. If a person doesn't have the fifth Shulchan Aruch, as they say in Yiddish, if you don't have the fifth Shulchan Aruch, then the other four is going to mess it up. And the reason is because you have to understand the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. Uh, and you have to apply in the spirit of the law. Now, there's a danger that you may be led by the idea of the spirit of the law to be caught up in whatever Mishagas is running around in your culture in that day. We're not talking about that. You know, we're not talking about Reform Judaism or any of those types of things. We're talking about people who were, you know, who learned by Elia Navi, who learned by David Amelech. I mean, for years, who learned, you know, by Ezra Nehemiah and so forth. And uh, they're a different type of individual. They have that uh, jurisprudential mentality. They're Dayanim in the best sense of the word, that they see how... The laws are applied. They see the things you see in books in Sfarim, how it's, you know, put Lamaisa. You get what I'm saying? How it's applied Lamaisa. Uh, 
And you see that even though it says this and this in the Shulchan Aruch, the other books, they don't really apply it that much. On the other hand, there's something that you, you, you somebody svara, and you don't know if it applies lemais. And then you see they don't know. That's what they do. So this is invaluable. You get it? This is the only way Pesach remains a live, living thing. Uh, my Rabbi Ray Romberg, he lived with Moshe Feinstein for I don't know how many years, and then he saw, you know, what they apply and what he doesn't apply. Ramosha, I'm talking about, and things like that. So that's called Mishpatzetic. Why? Because let's say I was the guy who learned by so and so for 20 years, and now I know when to hold him, when to fold him, and when to be machmir and when to be mikkel, when to apply the same question that's asked me by two people, and what if I give a heter and what if I give an iser? And I cannot be accused of being inconsistent because there was no law that was written down. It was the Torah Shavapah. And so the reasons for, you know, uh, issuing a psaq for this person that's a heter and for that person that's an iser is based on my evaluation of the totality of the situation. And I understand this is the spirit of the law. Torah Shavapah means entirely spirit of the law. It's not that Moshe Rabbeinu simply said, memorize a whole bunch of rules. And for some reason, we have a taboo against not writing them down. He was explaining the spirit behind it, right? The meaning of it, so that you will know when to apply and not apply it. And that's based on, you know, human being things. So that's Mishpatzetik. Because if you have a Shoftim with Shoftim, if you have real Shoftim and Shoftim, and they understand what I just said, and the law operates in the ideal way that I was just describing, especially the Ron, uh, then courts are not going to be looked to for consistency. Their consistency will be always looking for the spirit of the psaq. Always getting it right because they take into account all the different circumstances of the Shiloh. Right? And, you know, they'll understand. It, it, it's, in other words, let's put it this way. You're not, you're not supposed to show favoritism to somebody just because they're poor. That's true. But on the other hand, the fact that the guy's poor should affect your psaac, right? Now, um, I don't know how exactly, and it depends on the on the facts of the case, but it should affect the psaac. Um, instead of simply saying, well, tough luck, you know, this is the din and too bad, you know, eek of a din is a horror or something like that. You don't do that. You do not do that. Uh, now, the Mishpat HaMelech, on the other hand, by contrast, and I'm following in the steps that are on here. The king has rules. The king has rules precisely that are written down. The law codes that we all have in, in, in Europe and around the world are the law codes of kings and jurists that the king set up. Have you heard of the Justinian Code from the Emperor Justinian? Have you heard of the Frederick the Great Code, the, Napole the Code Napoleon, the Chinese emperors, the India guys? Around the world, these guys would get together people I'm talking about the good ones. I'm not talking about the, 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 the crazy dictators, you know, Caligula didn't have a code. I'm talking about the, the so-called good rulers. Um, Catherine the Great Code. They got together people and jurists and people like that. And as soon as you're talking about jurists, the idea was, let's codify the law, which means let's write down as clearly as possible what the rules are. Precisely, by the way, to, as much as possible, strip the judges of their independent power of what I was just talking about a minute ago. The laws were encoded and written down to deprive the judiciary 
of, you know, total discretion. People then, as is the case with many people today, usually conservatives, say the judge is too lenient, the judge is too this, the judge is that. We want mandatory sentencing. We want mandatory rules. You do this and this and this, you go to jail for 20 years, I don't care what. You understand? And the reason they write it, we have that in this country also. The reason they write that stuff down is precisely to tie the hands of the Shoftim Shoftim. The approach of the Melech, therefore, is more of a unilateralist one and a more of a, of a you know, um, not so monolithic one, which, you know, is one rule and this is it. And, you know, I end up destroying your life and your family. Too bad. TDB. Right? Too bad. You know, you broke the law and you're going to do this and this and this. You know, like a lame miserable or something. And uh, that becomes the other stand, the Mishnah Melech, that the stability comes from the written downness <laughs> of the laws. In the first case that I mentioned before, it's precisely uh, the Shoftim the, the, the Shotrim, I'm talking about the Ron now, the Shoftim the Shotrim have the confidence of the people because of their lifestyle and everything, because of their irreproachable conduct, because of their piety, because of their Yashras, so people say, okay, you know, if they if they say that this should be an exception or this should be here or this law is not a good law or something like we're going to follow them, right? Because they command the respect of the public. Uh, in the other system, it's a different part. It's the institution. You understand? Uh, the king is institution. People have to follow Mishra Mlucha simply because if you don't, you'll have no, you'll Isha Esrei Chaim you need a king no matter how bad because you need basic law and order. I'm not denying that that's not, there's a truth to that. But that's a pretty shvacha business. If I go to a country today, and there are mentored countries like this, especially around the world and the third world and all the rest of it, you know, in Africa, Asia, whatever, South America, and let's say there's a certain dictatorship, and I walk around in that country, maybe I've done this, I don't know, and I say to myself the following, Oh, it's a tough government over here. Singapore comes to mind, you know. It's a tough government over here. If you break the law, it's very harsh. And, uh, you know, they go nuclear on you and all that. But I'll tell you one thing. I can walk on the street. And I don't have to worry about being assaulted. And, you know, the garbage collection works. And, uh, you know, the running water works. And, uh, you know, the bathroom and, the, and you turn on the water. You know, the society functions. And so what you end up saying is like this. Oh, the guy's a rough guy, and it's a, certainly a ruthless dictatorship. But on the other hand, he's able to organize the society and make it run. They used to say Mussolini makes the, makes the trains run on time. Well, that's true, but it's a very sad uh, commentary in that culture if it requires a dictator of some forth or another to enforce that. That's what called the Mishmet Hamlucha. So my basically what I'm saying is that to understand the Ron better because I used to think it's simply an artificial distinction. Uh, but not really. Understand the Ron better. You know, if you understand that the Mishpan Shoftim is um, a Toshival Peh, which again, I repeat a hundred times, doesn't mean that there were a bunch of rules and you were not allowed to write them down. It means the rules are totally flexible. You have to leave it totally in the hands of the Shofate. As we would say today, the Gadolador or somebody like that. Uh, so when you have like that, and it works right, then you have a society that's run on Mishpatzedek.
because, you know, two people committed the same crime, but one gets this kind of punishment, one gets that kind of punishment because of the circumstances, you know, which are as varied as, as, as human nature. Uh, so I think it's very interesting that you have this distinction, not so much on the structuralist end, but what constitutes the essence of the different structures. The courts uh, in Judaism, I mean, the original Judaism, not today, the courts in the original Judaism were um, institutions of Torah They're not what you think. You think of a court and you think of a guy just applying the law. And in those days, you had to be much more creative than simply applying the law. It was applying the law like an artist, not like a technician. The uh, posik today, people take a rabbi and he showed the Paskin Hilchus is a technician. By the way, that's pretty good too. If you know Hilchus Shabbos or Hilchus Taras Mishpacha and so on and so forth, very good. You know, you know all the shachs and the taz and then the Mogan Avram. I mean, you know, really, that's impressive. But you're a technician. You're taking what it says in the books, you're applying them over here. I'm talking about something more than that. I'm talking about a system, which we don't exactly have today, after they started running the Torah down, in which it's more of a case of an artist. You're saying, you know the spirit of all the Hilcha Shabbos. You know, of course, the Hilcha Shabbos. You know the spirit of Hilcha Shabbos. You know what the goals and the and means are. You're a from guy, not someone taking advantage of it. You're a from guy. Uh, okay, then you end up with a Mishpat Tzedek. When you deal with a Melech, Melech got to be a Melech not by being such a from guy, and not being such a nice person, and he's not an artist. The Melech is a Melech. He says, you know, my rules are based on the force. On, uh, you know, on called the Olam Gvar, as the as the Bar- Bar- uh, so aptly phrases it. And uh, that's a different that's a different standard. It's a much different standard. I want to make one more point, and that is you have, in last week, this week especially, all about the false prophets. Uh, somebody actually wrote me a question the other day. I forgot how it goes. What do you mean, you know, God is testing you when he sends a, a prophecy and it doesn't come true or something like that? And uh, I got I got to remember over here. What is it? Who has the best shot on Novi Shekhar? Why does it say God is testing us? Why does it say God is a liar? It's weird to say he is Nebuah from God worshipping idols. Whatever it is, it doesn't mean, as I understand it, first of all, that's probably a separate discussion. I simply want to leave you with one point because it's a little bit late. And that is, a Navi does not mean somebody tells the future. A Navi is simply somebody who has some message from Hashem. You know what I said? Now, it may be that the Navi can tell the future. But that may be what the message is. But the Navi is not somebody, you know, psychic or something like that. It can, you know, simply know what's happening before it happens. The, t- the, the Navi Sheker is offering a message from upstairs, which offers guidance. So if he's a Navi Sheker, he's offering false guidance. You understand? Uh, to me, more interesting than the technical question, although it is interesting, the technical... And by the way, if you, if you are at all interested in this question... You can start by, I'm serious, you start by reading the Rambam's intro to the Mishnah, which I think the article put out in that book that included my thing in it. You know, the Rambam's intro to the Mishnah, where, um, Seder's Rome, where he uh, starts by going to history and then shifts off to the Navi business and goes to whole Arichas. 
and uh, in the typical Maimonidean fashion, you know, he has all these points back and forth. And if you take the trouble to read that, afterwards read the Barbonell's critique of it. It's too long to go into now. It's very, very interesting. Uh, but a Novi is not somebody that tells the future. On the other hand, the Novi guide, offers to guide your action. You see, he's saying this is what God wants you to do. Uh, and I guess it's often, it was often the case that a Novi, you know, painted a picture of a future. Um, what's, you know, fascinating to me is that in the last uh, 200 years of Jewish history, 250 years of Jewish history, we've had a succession of Novi Shekers, but not in the classic style of the old days in which somebody said, God told me so-and-so and such-and-such. But we had a whole bunch of Novi Shekers, who, uh, Nevi'e Sheker, who uh, um, offered, suggested ways in which the Jewish people should move forward which will, you know, end anti-Semitism, let's say, or something like that. Uh, that's all the isms of the last uh, couple centuries. Uh, most of them gone bankrupt by now. But, you know, when the Ascola started, and when Reform started, when Conservatives started, when Jewish Socialism started, when Zionism started, when the Bundes started, when the Yiddish started, uh, in America, you know, when the Reconstruction started, and, and the Liberals, and this, and that, and the other, it was all on the concept of a Novi Shekhar. No, they all said, we are really the prophets. We can see. And if the Jewish people will follow what we suggest, um, either by assimilation or by this or by that, or modifying X, Y, and Z, uh, or we'll set up a Jewish state, it will end cynicism, it will end anti-Semitism. Uh, and, you know, depending on who they were and how persuasive they were, they got all got followings. Uh, history is the final judge. Now, 250 years later, you see none of it was true. Uh, but I guess that's a different schmooze. Okay. Anyway, um, it's, it's late enough. I want to thank Avon Nismarin and his wife for uh, sponsoring today's uh, podcast. And with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com